with yesterday being the 20th anniversary of 9-11, you know, as you ponder this, most of us that were born then know where we were, can remember that. Um, kind of like when JFK or MLK was shot, you can remember right where you were. Um, I realize when I say when JFK was shot, there's only about five people in here that were alive during that, but uh, okay. But anyway, uh, I, I think when you think of these things, it just reminds you of how vulnerable we are as people. You know, we don't know when we'll die. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, many of us worry about whether all of our needs are going to be met. And, you know, 9-11 has a way of reminding us of what we might call our liabilities. Um, and if you remember what happened on that day, or remember, at least in New York, it was beautiful. There had been storms just previous to that, but on that morning, it was just a beautiful day. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. Um, and it's, it's appropriate, it seems, that when circumstances... Uh, seem in our favor, it is easy for us to forget God. It's easy for us just to depend upon ourselves and not have any sense of God's provision. Um, but God seems to allow uh, events in our life to remind us of how important it is for us to realize our need of him. It reminds me of the word of the psalmist, which says, Behold, God is my helper. Or God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So how exactly does God intervene with a tragedy like 9-11? Hugh Halter, who is co-author of The Tangible Kingdom, shared this, and I, I quote, two weeks after 9-11, I was in Queens, New York, training church planters. Every night I walked down to a local pub to eat dinner with some friends. A waitress named Fiona not only served us well, but seemed curious about our faith and what we were teaching as pastors. Each, each evening, our conversation deepened. So why would you, she said, ask pastors uh, to lead their churches if churches really don't do much good. <laughs> uh, knowing that one-third of her Irish friends in the 1980s and 1990s were sexually abused in the Catholic school system and that two of her friends were killed in Protestant Catholic fights gave me ample reason not to judge her criticism of organized religion. What could I say? How could I explain my love for Jesus without bringing the church into it? I simply talked with her about the kingdom. I said, Fiona, Jesus came to offer an alternative way of life from all the exclusive, religious, sectarian, and sinful ways people live. He called it the kingdom. And it was huge for people back in the day and also for anyone looking for the real God. I've never heard about the kingdom, she said. Tell me more. My final night in town as I came in to say goodbye before flying back to Oregon, I heard Fiona yell over a crowded room, 
That's the guy I was telling you about. You've got to hear how he talks about God. As the barroom split and she called her friends over, she looked at me and said, tell them what you told me. You know, all that stuff about the kingdom. That night changed everything for me. I started an entirely new spiritual journey that pulled me out of my jaded consumeristic Christianity. What happened next? We simply grabbed a few friends and started a community that was committed to living out and inviting us into kingdom ways of life. Before we knew it, a church was started without us even trying. End quote. It's like flowers sprouting in a field of weeds that God seems to be drawing people out of a culture that's enmeshed in independent living without Jesus. The kingdom of God is rising up out of a world that demonstrates that he has people who are willing to worship and serve him as the real king. Wouldn't you say the culture needs such a thing? People around us need that demonstration. I would. And God sought to do that in unique ways right after 9-11. Our neediness was heightened. Somehow we forgot about it. We forgot about the unity we had as a country then as well. But this is certainly something, recognizing our neediness, this is certainly something that Israel forgot. You know, our idols may not be a golden calf, but when we walk independent from God, we like to appear that we're adequate. Perhaps God is wanting us to see our own inadequacy. You know, if you look at all the things that have caused pain in our life, the trauma? Could it be that God is knocking down some idols and showing us once again how desperately we need him? Oh, that Israel could have heard that message. Let's turn to our passage in Hosea 13. Let's all stand as we take a look at this. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the Chaff that swirls from the threshing floor like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It is I who know you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. 
These don't seem like friendly words from the Bible. You might even think they are odd words and an odd description of God, but there they sit. Raw, communicating to us something that perhaps has meaning for us in this century, and I think it does. May our hearts be willing to listen. And so, Father, we welcome you today to speak through your word as stark as it seems. We need you. We need your touch. We need your word. We need wisdom from above. We certainly don't claim to know it all. So I ask you to work as only you can. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Ephraim was the largest tribe in Israel. And as we've often seen throughout this book of Hosea, it was used synonymously with Israel. They used to tremble before the Lord, and we assume that means that when they expressed their praise and dependence upon the Lord, there was trembling. And the members of Ephraim were descendants of Joseph's youngest son and Jacob's favorite grandson, and to whom was given a special blessing in Genesis 48. However, a turning point occurred when one of their number, Jeroboam, led a rebellion of ten tribes against Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Jeroboam and his tribes led the others to form a new nation, and in an effort to sever all religious, tri um, all religious ties, to the temple of Jerusalem, a calf idol was set up at Bethel, and Ephraim was thoroughly corrupted by their worship to Baal. The syncretism of worshiping the Lord and Baal eventually descended into a singular devotion to Baal. Somebody's going to win out. Baal was the chief god of the Canaanites. And Hosea makes the proclamation that in the pursuit of Baal, Israel died. What an interesting thing to say. They died as a nation. Even though Adam was condemned to death in the garden, there was a slow death in life that was not fully realized until the end of his life. And it'd be the same for Israel, right? Their positive influence died. Their reputation died. Their freedom died. They were soon going to be ruled by Assyria. Verse 2 says, And now they sin more and more, and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who suffer human sacrifice kiss calves. There's this like momentum that's gathered. The more they worship idols, the more they're engulfed in this sin. They become more committed 
to their idol worship. God-given talents of workmanship were being used to manufacture substitutes for God in these idols. These became their source of dependence. The things they made became the things they depended on. Think of that. Are we really far from that? Is it any different than when we chop down trees and construct houses, bend metal and make cars, mine ore, fashion weapons, split the atom, make bombs? We place our security in the work of our hands rather than our maker. You know, the worst thing about idol, as the scriptures point out, is that they are utterly useless. Particularly when you need them the most. Our idol may not be a golden calf. But if we were to extrapolate the general meaning of an idol, of things that we depend on other than God, I think when we're honest, we'd have to say there's a lot of things that we depend on. In fact, there may be things that we depend on for emotional support, security that you wouldn't normally think of. Esquire magazine recently gave a scathing critique of the unchecked power and influence of what they called the big four. You know who they were? Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Now before you snicker, listen to this. Describing, and I'm quoting, describing the supremacy of Google, they said, as more and more people become alienated from traditional religion, we look to Google as our immediate all-knowing oracle of answers, from trivial to profound. Google is our modern-day God. Think back on every fear, every hope, every desire you've confessed to Google's search box, and then ask yourself, is there an entity you've trusted more with your secrets? Does anybody know you better than Google? A parody of these beliefs gives nine evidences that Google is God. It's not as far-fetched as you may think, the author says. He mentions Google is the closest thing to an omniscient entity. Google is omnipresent. You can get it anywhere. Google answers prayers or do a search for all your questions and problems. Google is potentially immortal. Google is infinite. Google remembers all. And the author says Google can do no evil. According to Google's trends, the term Google is searched for more than God, Jesus, Allah, Buddha, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism combined. Now, we may not kiss our keyboards like they kissed the calf, but we sure have great affection for Google. It's known that the worshipers of Baal sacrificed humans. Knowing this fact makes it quite absurd that they would kiss fake cows and kill 
humans. It seems that evil almost always leads to devaluing human life, does it not? We see it in our culture. I talked to a pastor this week who did the funeral for two children killed at Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut in 2012. Within the context of this devastation of human life, an individual not giving value, there's somehow a value in a funeral designating worth to the deceased, giving hope to those that are living. I would claim that the fallout of our materialistic, naturalistic, evolutionary view in our culture that gives way to abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, weaponizing our ideology with riots, elimination of the opposition. This is just the tip of the iceberg of how humans are devalued as this culture increasingly rejects a theistic mindset. Do you see the video of the woman wearing a gorilla mask attacking Larry Elder in California, the black Republican candidate for governor? There was something far more telling than just a cowardly attack in a mask. But a woman feeling empowered as an animal, attacking a political opponent. Ephraim's in our backyard. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. Hosea 3, 13-3 describes the phase of when we reach the final stage of helplessness, of not wanting the Lord's assistance. Those who refuse to put their trust in the Lord are going to become like mist, dew, chaff, smoke, We might call these the descriptors of fading away or drifting away. This is Israel. The nation of Israel will vanish as a national entity and the people will disappear from the promised land. They shall be like a morning mist and dew that vanish with the heat of the sun, like chaff blown away by the wind, like smoke that is seen coming out of a chimney, only to be absorbed into the atmosphere. It's the epitome of pride to think that we are indispensable and in control. And you say, man, those bad Israelites. Just stop for a second thinking we're in control, arrogant, and prideful. Is this not in some of our homes? 
Is this not this devaluing of of a husband to a wife? Not true of some of us. The arrogance, the inability to respond to those closest to us with, with humility, instead always blaming, that can be in our hearts as well. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. See, if we're in our right mind, we read that and we bow before him as our maker and as our creator. And we realize that when it comes to our families, it comes to our church, it comes to our relationships, God is doing a molding. We we sang about it, a new wine, crushing And instead, we sometimes arrogantly fight and bicker proudly in our arrogance, proclaim it, crow about it in our homes, and God is saying, you're acting like you're God. You're not. Humble yourself. Admit your fears. See, I preach this to myself, not to one of you, because I know my own tendency. Hosea elaborates on this theme in verses 4 through 6. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. But when, you, when they had grazed, they became full, and they were filled with their heart. Their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. As he's done numerous times, he hearkens back to the history of Israel and how God had intervened, how he delivered them from Pharaoh in Egypt and through the miraculous working of the plagues, through the splitting of the Red Sea. Do you remember that, Israel? Do you remember how I gave you water to drink, food from heaven? That was me. I was your savior. I delivered you. And now you're kissing fake cows? Really? They forgot. Their heart was exalted. He filled them. Their prosperity caused them to forget the Lord. You know, it's not automatic But I would say that it's few that can handle prosperity. Now, this is relative because really, in terms of the world economy, every person in this room is prosperous. We know that, right? Every American is prosperous when you compare it to the world economy. But affluence can easily 
breed pride. Remember Jesus' words? And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Whatever that means, (laughs) I think part of it is it's really hard when you're rich to keep your perspective. And again, that's all of us, not just a few. Listen, you can make $30,000 a year, you can make $300,000 a year, and our hearts are still prone to forget God and to still be prideful, to still trust riches. I remember, I've told this story and it bears repeating again. It's not because I forget, because I'm getting old. I know that I've told it, so just hang with me, all right? But in the business I was in before I became a pastor over 30 years ago, I remember going to a convention and sitting in Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, there with my boss, and it was as if it was an out-of-body experience. And I was saying to myself in the mid-20s, man, this is nice. This is really cool. I'd love me some of this. Hmm. Christian, teaching Sunday school. But my heart was arrogant and prideful. And it still can be when I see myself is maybe the source and think I'm hot stuff or I've got this. See, I I think maybe what God is wanting to do, it's not that we're to feel guilty for having stuff. It's not that at all. But maybe God is saying, listen, I've given you all this. And how about you leverage that for the kingdom? How about you thank me for what you have and remember me in your prosperity? I think God is honored by that. He's honored by your boats, your house, your car, when you use them to serve others. You have a nice house, how about using it to bless other people? You leverage those things for the kingdom of God. God gives you extra cash, you can use some of that to bless others, right? And so it's not that God wants us to feel guilty for blessing us but it's not just ours to consume. We have other purposes to fulfill. We're a servant of the king. God is not a locket to bring out at convenient times to demonstrate our devotion. But he wants to be our life, our daily sustenance. And we have to remember that constantly. Verse 7, so I am to... To them like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. I wish I could give you some Hebrew meaning of the Old Testament that would dumb this down and say, well, it really doesn't mean that. 
He means more like, you know, uh, you might get in a little trouble, so watch out. But that's not what it says. And I don't think we dumb this down. And I know that the language does not seem fitting for God. It seems too rough. However, we can't allow our cultural sensibilities to miss the meaning here. The judgment of God is swift and powerful. It will be like a leopard lurking, ready to pounce on its prey. It will have the power and determination of like a mother bear protecting her cubs. And make no mistake, your flesh will be torn. This is an apt description of what is going to happen to Israel when the Assyrians take over. Assyria was prowling about, circling the prey of Israel. And soon the attack would come. People would die. The land would be devoured. And God would execute his judgment upon his people. See, you, you may not like this passage. And I've heard pastors talk about this. You know, the progressive type. All the blood conversation in the Old Testament. That's not for us today. That's not God. We're going to, you know, rewrite Jesus into some kind of Oprah-fied being that, you know, just hugs, welcomes, and loves, but doesn't judge. You may think this is too violent for God. You may certainly think it's not culturally appropriate, but our opinions will not stop the reality of a holy God. He will execute his discipline upon a rebellious people. It may not be comfortable, but comfortable is not our goal when facing a holy God. Why? Verse 9, he destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. The word for destroy describes the act of taking something beautiful, strong, functional, or moral, and distorting it so it becomes ugly, weak, useless, and corrupt. All of the blame of Israel's ruin laid upon themselves. They are responsible. If there's anything that should ring true for the Christian truly walking with God is that they are quick to claim responsibility and not blame. They're quick to humble themselves. I've heard of children, spouses talking to somebody in the home and denial and arrogance. I hope it only lasts a short time. But a house can have so much peace if we lead with love and humility, if we admit that we were wrong. If you thought Hosea was rough, listen to Deuteronomy 32. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none 
that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of, of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Wow. I know a lot of people, again, who say, you know, that's Old Testament stuff, but God's different now. Well, there's nothing in the Bible that'll tell you that. Now, we have a new covenant, not an old covenant, okay? God has given us grace. He's given us Jesus. I get that, but he still judges sin. For the punishment of our sin in an eternal sake, he's put that upon Jesus. He no longer punishes us for our sins so that you, know, you may lose heaven when you sin. For any true child of God, that's not the case. The punishment was put on Christ. But when we rebel against God as his children, he will discipline us. And even severely. And we see in the New Testament of some who even had their lives taken from them early because of their sin. And so we are to, we are to obey and worship this God with reverence and awe. There is a healthy fear to have of God, not an abject fear of, you know, like the whack-a-mole, okay? That's not God. But he wants us in relationship. And just like a, a loving parent disciplines their rebellious child, God disciplines his children. I leave you with the appropriate remarks from Andy Crouch regarding idol worship, the chief problem of Israel and certainly a problem for us today. There is simply no other creature in the world that harbors the ambition to be like God except for image bearers. That's us, human beings. Next time you are at the zoo, try approaching an elephant, cheetah, or crocodile and whispering to them, you shall be like God. Not only will they regard you with a difference or possibly faint stirrings of hunger, you will have a hard time not laughing. For all their grandeur and power, the world's greatest creatures just do not give the faintest evidence of wanting to be something other than a well-fed version of what they already are. And then he ends with this. I will admit there is a partial exception. Cats. <laughs> love it. I'm not a cat guy, so I love this. <laughs> but cats give every sign of already considering themselves equal to God, and thus they are supremely, serenely free of petty human traits like ambition. 